Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Welcome to the Managing Madrid Podcast. This is your host, Kian Silvani. On a Thursday, March 22nd, we are in the middle of an international break and we don't care much about it. And since Real Madrid is not playing any midweek games, we're taking this opportunity to talk about Real Madrid's history because Om Arvin actually, a few days ago, put up a Real Madrid all-time 11 and we wanted to just hash it out, go through it, and kind of debate a bit, go back and forth, talk about the history of the club, the great players, and so forth. Omar Vind, here to do his big reveal for his all-time 11. Joining me on the podcast right now, Om, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to reveal my all-time 11 if you haven't seen it on Twitter already. How long did it take you to do this uh, is my first question, and also what spurred you to write it? So it, I, I, I sat on it. I, I took a while to make this 11 because I, I had done a study abroad, a short study abroad over spring break, and I was coming back, and I was sitting at a long layover in the airport, and, and so I had time, and I, I really thought about who I would put in my all-time 11 just to kill time. I took my time, and I, it was probably took like three or four hours because I really, really thought about some specific positions because there were some tough decisions to make, and that's why... At the end of the day, I'm pretty satisfied with my 11, and I'm not sure that I would really change any of the players that I have in my 11 because I feel like I've, I've thought about it a good bit. You may or may not change it by the time we go through it together. So I, in preparation for this podcast, I went and I created my own. The way I did it um, was I did a 4-3-3, and then I made a squad. So a 23-man squad, essentially it's two players per position, and then you have uh, the leftover player is the third-choice goalkeeper. And you and I were talking about this a bit off-air. These things are so crazy because there's so many different ways to do it. So while I had two different two differences in the starting 11 to yours, I completely understand your rationale about selecting the players you did. Um, and I think the importance of you doing it that way is because you helped debunk some narratives, some myths, um, because I feel like there is some revisionist history with certain players, and this will help kind of like shed some of those myths. Yeah, I, and yeah. I think there's 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 a couple ways you can try to build an eleven, right? And I think a way a lot of people do this is you you think about well, I have one really important match, and it, it's going to be win me the Champions League or some really important trophy, and who do I put in that eleven to play that one match? And I understand people who do it that way, but the way I did was I looked. 
at players' entire seasons at Real Madrid, and then I compared them to each other, and I decided which was better when I, when I placed them within my four three three. And to me, that that is fairer because you 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 have a greater sample size. You're looking at the breadth of history, and that way you decide the best players that played at Real Madrid over over course of time. But I totally understand players, uh, people that do it the other way because, I mean, it's just kind of a stylistic difference. If, if you like, if the fan in me was to create this eleven, just like from a fan perspective, just just purely out of the players I like, what would be fun? I'd probably shoehorn a bunch of offensive players. The other way to do it is if a gun was to my head and the gunman was telling me, look. That a the team of of a team of aliens is coming to Earth. This these are the best in the entire universe and the multiverse. You need to put an eleven that wins now. Forget about putting Di Stefano in a time machine, waking him up eighty years later, um, which is completely not correct math. But you get my <laughs> you get my point. Um, and asking him to wake up and just figure it out and and figure out the modern game. I think that would be a disaster. So. I'd probably go into panic mode and then and put like a couple brainiacs defensively, you know, uh, organizers like Chabi Alonso Redondo together. Maybe have like a compact scheme, possibly a counterattack. And it's just not as fun to do it that way. I mean, it, you could do it that way, but it's you you you'll miss out on a lot of players. You'll you'll un, you'll punish a lot of players just for the fact that they were born in a different era. And mm-hmm. let me ask you this, like. We'll get into the eleven in a second. Do you think, like, we know for a fact that science is better now, athletes are better. That that's just a fact. So when a lot of the times when when people say was Ronaldo is was Di Stefano better than Ronaldo, the there's two ways to answer it. One is who was more important for the club, and who was the better player. And to me, Cristiano was just better. And the reason for that is because of the fact that we have better athletes now, we have better fitness, and the game has changed so much. However, I wonder, and, and there's no way to really know this. If you, if Di Stefano was born in this era, do you think he would just adapt, or would it just he, he like would it, we would just never know? I mean, you, I mean, you never know, but I, I would, I would put my money on a player of Di Stefano's quality adapting to the game. I, I think he would be, I think he would be forced to play in a slightly different way because, in many ways, Di Stefano was the, the, the first total footballer, and then there's a reason that we haven't really seen a, another total footballer <laughs> since because in today's game where the demands are much greater, I think the average kilometers that a player ran in that time was like three times less than, than what the average player runs now. It would just be more difficult for Di Stefano to, to affect every phase of the game in the same way. Right. Um, but he would still be a fabulous footballer. I would see him as a kind of attacking midfielder slash, you know, basically an all-round attacking midfielder who would still get on the, the score sheet a ton of times, would be able to put in a defensive shift. But just his ability to affect all phases of the game would be reduced. I mean, I think he'd adapt... I mean, we, 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 you'd never obviously be able to know, but um, but when it comes to deciding who's better, to me, it's always a bit fallacious to argue a player 60 years ago is, is better than the player, the greatest players we have now, simply because of the fact that, that the players are, are much better trained now. They, they, have, they face much, much harder tactical systems. And I mean, that's, that's just a fact, right? Like, it, it may seem unfair, 
but I, it's just a fact that the players, every, when you when you jump every 50 years, those players will always be better simply because the sport progresses and they'll be the best player of that time and, and therefore the best player of the best football of all time that we've seen thus far. Yeah, and, and there will be exceptions to this rule of people who will just be ahead of their time. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like Ronaldo was one of those players. Like 30 years from now, we'd be like, wow, he was just uh, such a such an anomaly like even for his time to to just be ahead of the game so much just to be a freak the way he is and sometimes like i even like i think back to like the the first galactico era i'm like wow that was so long ago but then you realize you know what it's it's not that inconceivable but that those players would just slide right into the modern game be like be fine it wasn't that long ago and mm. and that confirms it when you go back and watch the games you look at the pace of the games you look at the tactics and and some of the great defensive teams that Real Madrid went up you know in that time uh, against like Milan and Juve and Bayern and you know those players would would hold up fine in, in today's game I think when you go back really far and you and you watch Di Stefano play and um, I know a lot of people will say well how can you watch Di Stefano play and I can't claim I do, but I actually have watched a couple full matches just out of curiosity and for a yeah. couple articles. Every I know you have too. Yeah, and if you go to footballia.net, you can watch a couple of those games. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. And the pace was completely different. Like, yeah, it, it feels like they all took shots of heroin before, and they're they're playing in slow motion. <laughs> like, there, there's the time on the ball is drastically different. The pressure is drastically different. I don't know if. I can't. I, I'm thinking back to watching all those clips and, and a couple of full games. I don't think there was ever such thing as a high press. You know what I mean? Like yeah. So structure didn't exist. Yeah. But but it's it's a little surprising, right? So when you watch those games, you'll be like, you'll watch them, you'll be like, damn, these these guys as individuals are actually pretty good. Like you look yeah. at them and and you you could easily imagine them doing what they're doing on in today's games because as individuals they were fabulous and I think that gives them a sense of longevity but when it comes to team tactics and structure I mean it was fairly non-existent in the 1960s European finals Frankfurt's main uh, Eintracht Frankfurt which was the team that Real Madrid was playing their main strategy was passing the ball back to their keeper who picked up the ball so I guess the back pass rule didn't exist and he picked up the ball and then he'd launch it up the field and that was what they did 90% of the time every time they had the ball and Real Madrid mm-hmm. I would say had more advanced tactics there was there was a greater resemblance of modern day build up of, of, of patience and possession and creating a kind of structure to retain possession when they launch crosses into the box um which is why I put Miguel Munoz as 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 my manager for my all-time 11 because he was ahead of his time with his tactics but it also really helped that we had Di Stefano basically providing overloads in every phase of the game that made such a style of play possible. We're going to talk we're obviously going to talk more about Di Stefano as we go through the lineup. I will say like I I your point about basically the lack of structure but having individual great players is is completely accurate. It's bang on. And one of the things like that stood out to me going back and watching these games is someone like uh, Gento, who was a genius. He was incredible. Like I, I feel I almost feel bad for him that we, he kind of played during the Di Stefano Puskas era because like I feel like we just never talk about him. And that that same game against Frankfurt, he was just he was a machine. I mean, Di Stefano and and Puskas combined for all seven goals scored in that game. All right, don't talk about them too much. We need to get okay. To all, right, all right, all right. Um, but no, I just wanted to talk about Gento just for that second. I also wanted to say, 
I've seen some clips of Garincha, and and I don't know if you watched him play at all. I'm like, oh my god, he's he was like literally a modern day like, I don't know, just one of these players who can like just dribble like crazy, like a Quaresma or like a yeah. you know that kind that kind of style. And he was just ripping players alive like way back in the day, and it's just really cool. Like I sometimes we think like, oh my god, it's we're so far removed from it, and we are, but there's actually like really cool things that have carried over since then. Let's start from the back. Goalkeeper, I think, is an obvious choice. Tell us who your starter is. So it's obviously Diego Lopez. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> hey, man, it's Diego obvious. Lopez was fantastic for he us. Was, he, was, he was good in his, in his time at Real. It's obviously Iker Casillas, in my opinion, the greatest goalkeeper of all time. So he obviously makes this 11. I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen a, a, a player like this guy. I don't think we'll see a player like Casillas for a very, very long time. Just his sheer reflexes and, and one-versus-one ability in his prime was, was just, he was basically like a demigod on the pitch. Respect not just his, his ability, but also his leadership, his, his qualities as a human being, just probably in my top five favorite players of all time, just all things considered. Prime Eker was just just completely insane and i you know we talked about this before but there was a period from like 0304 till 0506 and before capello came where real madrid just didn't have a defense like it you might as well not have fielded anything like it was it was a disaster and he was just fending everything off by himself like a complete god and i would love to see detailed stats of that time of that era because yeah, yeah. You know, the way we see with De Gea now, like, we know, like, we see it on the eye test, but statistically it's it's backed up where he just, com- he, com- he, he pulls, like, complete miracles out of his ass and has saved Manchester United, like, so many points this season in the Premier League, like, more than any other goalkeeper in the league. And I would love to see stats like that for, for Casillas in his prime. My only, my only, uh, complaint with Iker was he didn't have the longevity that I hoped he would we know he's playing late in his career we know that um he had a bit of a fall and that that kind of stung it kind of hurt but his peak was just just ridiculous he's actually been pretty good at Porto over the past couple of seasons obviously not at at, at the level that we 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 really saw Casillas in the past but he actually had a quiet resurgence that no one has really paid attention to um, I do know he's played okay this season, um, but I mean it's good to hear. Um, I, I, it's just it, it kind of like irks me that all we hear about is Buffon and oh my god, Buffon is this uh, this saint. <laughs> and uh, I'm just gonna say that Buffon admitted that Casillas is the greatest of all time, so that debate is ended. Let's move on. Who did you have as your backup? So I had Ricardo Zamora, of course, the the clean sheet trophy that is awarded to every goalkeeper or the the goalkeeper the most clean sheets at the end of every La Liga season is named after Ricardo Zamora. Um, so I slotted him in. He was Real Madrid's goalkeeper for uh, for six seasons, and I'm not really that aware of any other of that many more great goalkeepers in Real Madrid's history. So it was a fairly easy choice to have him on the bench. I also had Zamora as my backup and Casillas as my starter. So right now we're on the same page. Interesting thing about Zamora is he he signed for Real Madrid at the age of thirty, which is crazy. Like he he wasn't that young. And this is also a trend. Like, well, 
a couple other players in year 11 also like fit this bill where they started their Real Madrid career very late and they actually went on to make their legacy after that. Um, Zamora obviously was a, a, a huge important in Spanish football history and you mentioned the trophy named after him. He signed for Real Madrid at the age of 30, then went on to play 82 games after that. Just just crazy. Um, and also spent so much time at Barcelona and Espanol, obviously. The only... So this is the only player I have. Uh, this is my leftover player. This is my third goalkeeper. So I have one more that you just didn't have by default. And it's uh, Paco Buyo, who I'd say is the third best goalkeeper in Real Madrid history. Um, spent a lot of time at the club. Played over 340 games. And um, also went on to... to to manage some of our our Castilla teams later on in his, in his in his life and was a goalkeeper coach I think for for one of our one of our teams and he was basically during that kind of like overlap with the Quinta del Buitre and uh, and and played until 1997 so actually technically also overlapped with Raul um I want to ask you something and this is kind of a, uh, this is kind of off topic, but kind of not. Where do you think we'll rank Kaler by the time he retires? Uh, uh, that's a really difficult question because I don't know that much about our goalkeepers in the pre-Casillas era. There's not that many. There's a handful. Yeah, I mean... This is I one think, of our thinnest positions historically. I think he could go down as top 10 simply because his 2015-16 season is one of the greatest individual goalkeeping performances I've ever personally seen. I mean, it, it was ridiculous, especially the first half of that season where he was just keeping us alive in La Liga. Um, I personally don't think his following seasons have been as good, and I think they've been they've been marred a little by inconsistencies. But I think considering that it's one of our thinnest positions, and I Kaler sheer quality in in that and over the course of that entire season. You know, I think he could. I think you could make a strong case. He'd be top ten. Um, I when I don't know. If I I don't know when comparing him to Diego Lopez, who I would put higher. I haven't I haven't thought that hard um, about Kaler's legacy at Real, but I think he'd be fairly high up. The the thing is, the way we'll look at this by default, like fifty years from now, is. We'll look back and, and people will be looking back trying to figure out who like the top 10 goalkeepers are. And they'll go and be like, oh, who's this guy? He won three Champions League titles. He's got to <laughs> be good. Like, I think by default, that'll actually come into play, you know? Yeah, probably. Um, and I, that, that kind of goes for a bunch of players in this era. Like, there's, let me, let me count. There's one, two, uh, three, four, five. I have five players in the squad from this current team. Is that is that crazy? From the one we have right now? Yeah. In the I, squad. That's, a little, not, not that's the, a little crazy. Not the starting lineup in the squad. Yeah, that's a little crazy. Yeah, okay. Well, this is this is why it's going to be exciting to go through it. And, and I want you to to bring me back down to earth if I'm, if I'm off base here. Let's go with your central defenders. All right. So um, right center back, I had... Fernando Hierro and for me this was one of the easier decisions I had I mean I thought about it for a couple minutes but he had to be there at the end I mean he 
he's a really he was a really really versatile player I mean he could play in defensive midfield just as well as he could play from a center back position he scored over 100 goals in his Real Madrid career um, I mean he he was really one of those players that comes closer to being a total footballer and he was just I mean he was brilliant in in all fi- in all aspects of the game he was an excellent defender he was consistent to me he had to be there and and then my other center back was a much much tougher choice um, for, I, mean, I think for others it wouldn't have been, but I tend to be a slight, slight skeptic when it comes to this man's consistency, and his name is Sergio Ramos, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was in most of your 11s, but I really, really had to think about this one, because I think up until this season, really, I think I would have put him on my bench, mainly because Ramos has a history of being one of our rashest ever players, and he just, apart from, I think, like the 13-14 season and and the, in the 2011-12 season, he, he just hasn't been consistent enough to to and, and lived up consistently to, to the ability that he has because on his day, he is easily the best defender in the world and one of the greatest defenders of all time. But I think he's played this long, not just as, as a great player, but as a leader. He scored so many important goals. I think I had to put him there based on sheer ability, and I think he's done enough over the course of his season to match up with the other great players coming to this point. I think this season has been an underrated season for him. I think consistency-wise, this has been one of his strongest seasons. So I put him in ahead of of Santa Maria, who was our best center back in the Di Stefano era, and he was who I would have put ahead of Ramos a couple seasons ago. So Santa Maria... If you have no idea who he is, was uh, one of three center backs that played in the D in in, in the D Stefano era. So we kind of played like a a three two two three type formation, and he was a central defender. And he not so basically the way like I told you like Eintracht Frankfurt would play that long ball s- strategy. That was how a lot of teams played against that Real Madrid side. So he had really, he was really, really good in the air. He was really clever with his interceptions, and his, he had really good anticipation. But more importantly, he was he was actually quite good on the ball. So he he would win the ball in the air. He would control it, and then he would calmly play the ball out from the back into wide areas or into Di Stefano. So which that that allowed Real Madrid to control the game in a way that most other teams couldn't at the time. So this was another one of those players that was ahead of his time. And so he he definitely had to be in my squad. I have the same starters as you. I have Santa Maria in the squad, but not, uh, not as a starter. And I think what's interesting about this is I have, a, I have someone else in here too that I would have put ahead of Santa Maria that you didn't mention, but... If you asked me this two years ago, I don't think Ramos would have been in the starting lineup, right? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, would you would you feel the same I, way? Yeah, I yeah. W- I would feel the same way. Yeah, um, I still have I have I still have I'm, I'm I am on the fence with Ramos a bit, but I think it's almost impossible to ignore what he brings to the table here in a big game, and that matters. And he has longevity. He's played a lot of games for the club. He's been really good. He has titles. He's stepped up in huge moments. And in between all this, he was he's also been an inconsistent hothead, hot-headed mess. But you the other stuff kind of trumps it for me. Yeah. The person I would have had ahead of Ramos two years ago would have been Manuel, uh, Manuel Sanchez, who 
I t- I caught the tail end of his career as a, as a Real Madrid fan because I started really watching games in '99, uh, and he retired in 2001, and he was like completely past it by then. But he he was a starter for so many games for so many years. He had crazy longevity. He had 18 years in the club, played over 520 games. Also played for Castilla, and uh, won a bunch of league titles. He won a couple Champions League titles over those 18 years, which doesn't seem like a lot. But guess what? Real Madrid went through a huge drought like the, every uh, for years before they won the seventh title. And um, yeah, I, I would have put him there as started two years ago. And then I have Santa Maria to round out the, the two subs. So yeah, Sanchez was a player that I, I definitely considered. Um, I mean, I put Santa Maria in there because... That Real Madrid side won five yeah. consecutive European titles, and it wasn't just the attacking players, right? It was him. It was the defensive players that that contributed um, in, in 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 a generous amount to to that success. I think another player was in my mind was Pashin, who was also a center back at at the same time. Um, I think he played in the last two European Cup finals, and he played on the left side. Of the defense, he was also another really quality defender. Though he didn't really have Santa Maria's ability on the ball, so it's kind of those five defenders that I was looking at in the center back position. And at the end of the day, I decided that Ramos and Hero deserved to be in the eleven uh, over those other three. Right back. So right back was right back was difficult. I put Chendo in there, who basically was the undisputed starting choice. Uh, for for eight seasons yeah. in in um like the 1980s to like early 1990s, uh he he won a ton of trophies, um he spent 16 seasons at the club and and really he was just a great all around player very hardworking had had great stamina and I mean I kind of put him there in, in for his longevity and for the amount of trophies that he collected at the club. I mean, you can argue successfully for for Salgado to be in there. And I was considering Carvajal, even though at the end of the day, I knew I wasn't going to put him there. But I think ability-wise, I think Carvajal is superior to those two. And I think at the end of his Real Madrid career, I think Carvajal can make it in there. And then there was a kind of a dark horse choice for me, which was Canario, who, again, going back to the Di Stefano era, Canario, Canario was a weird choice. And I eventually decided not to put him in there because in that time, he would have been considered a right winger. Um, but the way, like, so be more like a right wing back, like a three five two or something. If he were playing today, he would be a right wing back because the the, basically was Hento on the left wing, and it was Canario on the right wing. But Hento wouldn't track back, and 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 the reason Real Madrid had any balance whatsoever is because Canario would would track back and create essentially a back four. And he and the, th- the amazing thing about him is he wasn't just a workhorse. He was actually really, really good on the ball. He was a quality dribbler. Um, he wasn't Hento level, but he was quite a good dribbler. He could deliver a wicked cross, and he and he had an amazing work rate. And he and he would always track back. So if we want, if I had a formation that was like a back three with with and it needed a wing back, I'd probably put Canario in there. But at the end of the day, I went with Chendo. Um, I'm with you. I had Chendo starting, and then. I had Salgado as my backup, which I th- you did too, right? Is that what you said? No. Well, you I didn't. See. You didn't have a backup for you. He didn't make your backup. bench. I had a backup for left back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I I had Salgado on the bench, 
and I essentially omitted Carvajal. But I, I don't know about you, Om. I feel like Carvajal will actually be possibly a starter by the time he retires. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wasn't, I didn't feel too guilty about leaving him out because I, I knew that he would probably crack it anyway, eventually. Um, Salgado was a ton of fun during that whole era. I thought maybe he was one of the more underrated ones. Just a wizard offensively. I like he was a good tackler defensively, but he also wasn't known for being that good defensively. Um, but he was he could he could hold his own decently one on one. But he wasn't the greatest. Like I would have some anxiety when he was defending someone one on one. And um, but again, like offensively, he he contributed so much. Him and Figo really provided something fun. And then even before Figo arrived, he was a monster um, toward in that Champions League run to end to end the the title that that season for the ninth. After we beat Valencia in the final, he was immense. Uh, Maisie dribbler, good speed, strong player. Uh, also, like kind of like, I was really excited when we signed him low key because he had I had just watched him play for Spain and it was a friendly match. I can't remember who it was, and he was playing that game when he played for Celta, and I was like, oh my god, he's he's crazy good. He can dribble past anyone. He's a wing back. You. And and then we signed him that summer, so I was really happy about that. Who do you have for left back? Because this might be one of the most yeah controversial. Yeah. Controversial. I feel like most people have have chosen Marcelo at this point, but there are still people clinging to Roberto Carlos. So yeah, I put Marcelo. Um, I I mean I understand Roberto Carlos because he, re- he in many ways. He redefined or popularized the the offensive fullback that is so common today. But at the end of the day, it just has to be Marcelo for me. Um, I personally think Marcelo was a better defender than Carlos. Carlos often got to play as a wingback um, with a back three behind him. So he didn't often have to focus on defending as much. Marcelo has almost exclusively played in a back four, has had to cover the entire wing himself on many occasions. And I think the impact he just provides on the game is, is just something else. I mean, I, I personally think he's a better dribbler. I think the advantage Roberto Carlos has over Marcelo is shooting. So free kicks and shooting. I think Roberto Carlos was also he was also faster. But Marcelo is just a better dribbler. He's a better creator. He he contributes to build up in, in a way that I don't think Roberto Carlos could. And I, I just think when you're looking at the, over the course of, of a player's career, uh, of both their careers and looking at their their sheer influence on the game. I don't think any left back in the history of the game comes close to Marcelo's offensive impact. I mean, it's just out of this world. I think, I think you have when you're when you're discussing the two the, the greatest left backs of all time. There's Marcelo and there's Maldini, and then it's basically deciding whether you want a more defensively solid player there or you want a greater offensive influence. I mean, I think what Marcelo has brought to Real Madrid, I think in many ways he is our most important offensive player from the Ancelotti era all the way into the Zidane era. I think Marcelo brings something that no one else on the team does. And just on his day, he can single-handedly destroy defenses in a way that I don't think any other fullback has been able to do in history. No, I'm with you. That was that was quite a case you made. I I can't believe how far he's come. I really can't. Like yeah. <laughs> Matt Matt and I did a podcast last week about because uh, he he had written an article about Real Madrid's youngsters that were signed since the turn of the century, and Marcelo was one of them. 
And he arrived during that, that winter transfer with, along with Iguain and Gago. And I remember out of the three, we were most excited about Gago because he had this like redondo style and he was, you know, that was the player comp and everyone was really excited about him. Turns out Mar- Marcelo outlived all three of them and far and away the most successful signing of the three and one of the best in Real Madrid's history. Like, let's be, let's be real. Like, that signing in many ways actually changed the outcome of the club just because I've never seen... Like, we... When Roberto Carlos was around, we really, like... It was inconceivable for me to play without him. I was like, oh, my God. If he goes down, like, in a big game, we're screwed. Like, he's irreplaceable. And a lot of people donned Roberto Carlos as the guy who revolutionized the, the wingback position in terms of... He was more of a, a, a winger who would just... Who, who did so much offensively and linked up so well... Both like if with if with his efficiency, but also like aesthetically, the way he linked up with Zidane in the left wing for years was was really fun. And to play without him was was absurd. Like I I, w- I would be really fearful because it was either Raúl Bravo to come in, who was a disaster for most of his playing time, <laughs> uh, or Solari as a makeshift left back, which was actually an okay option like in in makeshift scenarios. But but a lot of people felt that Roberto Carlos revolutionized that position. But then you you fast forward and Marcelo's revolutionized it in a completely different way. And he was a better offensive player. And I was on the fence about this for a bit. I think you talked me into it. I, I com- I'm, I'm still okay with it if you wanted to choose Roberto Carlos. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Roberto Carlos was a tank. Like he really was a tank with 18 lungs, um, crazy fitness, crazy tree trunks for legs. And a big personality to have around. And uh, a guy who also, by the way, like fits the bill in terms of like a legend who really would do everything in his power to make sure that you came out of that, a game with three points. Um, but I totally get the Marcelo choice. And the way he influences games from his position is absurd. Defensively, he still has a lot of problems. I would, I will say it would be really cool if we had... Not that Real Madrid has done a really good job defensively this season in terms of covering for Marcelo. It was better last season. It's been a bit better in the, in the last couple months or so. It would be interesting to see Roberto Carlos in a better defensive scheme to see if we could have masked his defensive frailties a bit more. Um, like if we had a proper anchor that could cover for him, proper center midfielders because like, historically we generally haven't had good central midfielders and in this era we're really lucky to have a bunch of them it would have been interesting to have Roberto Carlos play in a more defensive scheme to kind of mask him a bit or have better coverage because Zidane sure as hell wasn't really tracking back to, to, <laughs> to double up on the flanks and he didn't have much security behind him either yeah, I, I think that would be interesting. I just want to quickly add before we move on that I think Roberto Carlos, when Marcelo, I think when he was still like 19, he was really, really early years at Madrid. I think Roberto Carlos looked at Marcelo and, and I think he said to the press that Marcelo is either going to become, I think he either said Marcelo will become better than me or said he has the yeah. potential to become better than me. So, I mean, I understand if you if you think Roberto Carlos is better but I've, I've had a couple people say to me that Marcelo isn't even in the conversation. I mean, when Roberto Carlos is saying it himself, I, I think I think you can definitely I, – I think there's no debate that they're in the conversation. I, I mean, I think you can still make a case for Roberto Carlos, and I respect it. But Marcelo is definitely there, and for me, he has a stronger case. So 
if you're just trying to stay, stay up to date with where we are with this, we have Casillas, Hierro, Ramos, Chendo, and Marcelo until now. Mm-hmm. What, how, where do we go next? Do we do the defensive midfield? Defensive yeah, midfielder. Defensive. Okay. This is um, interesting enough, in, in my opinion. This is one of the tougher ones because we actually had a d- decent list of like three to five pretty great cent- defensive midfielders in our history. Yeah, so this was the absolute toughest choice for me. I actually put out a poll beforehand because I simply couldn't decide and I needed some help. I mean, I eventually ended up picking the player that got the least votes, but huh. I don't know. It just really? somehow... Really? got the least votes? Yeah, so I picked Fernando Redondo, who got the least votes um, out of the three players I had shortlisted as the best defensive midfielders in Real Madrid's history, which was Redondo, Chabi Alonso, and Claude Makaleli. Mm. And... So after about like half an hour, I removed Makalele from the list, which feels blasphemous. And I still don't feel completely right about no, that. No, it doesn't. It's fine. Yeah. But the reason I did it was because simply I just think Redondo and Chabi Alonso were more complete. I think for me, I the what I like in a defensive midfielder is a controller. And Makalele just his, he offensively, he just wasn't nearly in the same category as Redondo and Chabi Alonso. Um and I like a good balance between defensive qualities, but I think it's really, really important, especially in, in the style of football. I'd like to play in the modern game to have a, a controller on the pitch, and that's not what Makaleli was. Um, so it was between Redondo and Alonso for me. And uh, Alonso is my favorite defensive midfielder of all time, so it, it made it really, really difficult for me. And his, his passing ability is just ridiculous. I mean, he's one of the few players that actually played diagonal long balls the way they should be played. But at the end of the day, I just looked at I looked at the all-round qualities and I said, Redondo, it, he's a better dribbler. You know, he's more press resistant. Um, I think he has very good defensive qualities and I think he's a very good passer as well. And I think Redondo was just the all-round package in a way that Alonso and Makalele weren't. So I just had to put him there. And I mean, his ability on the ball is something else. If you haven't watched Redondo play, you should go back and watch some clips. I mean, he looks like an attacking midfielder in a defensive midfielder position, except he could defend really well. He was very intelligent in his positioning, and he was a quite capable passer. Yeah, I, I'm i with you on Redondo. I'm surprised he got the least amount of votes in your poll, but it could have just been a recency bias or... Not surprisingly, not that many Madrid fans, especially the the more recent ones, know that much about Redondo. Yeah, I mean, and I think it has to do with him be, being like basically kicked out when Florentino came in. Yeah, so I think I think um, in my opinion, he's the best defensive midfielder of all time. Yeah, my opinion as well. And I think I, I it makes my blood boil when. I, I see discussions online and people are are talking about Makaleli and uh, Busquets. Busquets and their talk. Who else do they bring up regularly in that discussion? Um, I don't know. They even go back as far as like Rijkaard and Mateus. That's fine. They're all, all, all of those guys are amazing. But it makes my blood boil that Redondo isn't even in the discussion when yeah. he absolutely should be. And I think one of the things that would make him like completely... If if you had to tell me like you need to build a team right now that 2018 would go in a Champions League final and and modern football like and they would feel comfortable Redondo would fit it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Good two way player, um, not as limited as Makaleli was. 
just an organizer. And like I, I went and I, when I was writing my Ravel article, I actually went back and I rewatched several games. And one of them was the the Classico where Real Madrid tied 2-2, Raul scored the goal at the end of the game, did the hush celebration. In that game, like he was basically the one guy in midfield who was snuffing out so many attacks on his own, just reading the game, reading the passing lanes, intercepting passes and distributing. And he could play vertically. He always like looked ahead and rarely passed backwards. Phenomenal dribbler on the ball. Bit awkward looking because he was like tall and lanky, and mm-hmm. but he was comfortable on the ball, and he was just great. And like we talk about Makaleli as if he's this like mythical figure. Mm-hmm. Makaleli was incredible. Like to to be clear, like those three years that he was here, he I don't remember like a, a single time where someone like tried to take Makaleli on and it felt like he no one could ever get past him. Like he was just a brick wall. And but here's the thing, he was only here for three seasons. Like mm-hmm. we have to take that into consideration. I think I think when you're building an all time eleven, longevity matters, at least a little bit. And Makaleli was only here three seasons, even if it wasn't his fault. Like that has to come into play. Yeah, and I think another thing with Redondo that a lot of people, especially more recent fans, don't know is that a lot of the times he was basically the only guy in midfield anchoring the, the team. I mean, like, I think versus Manchester United, that famous game where he had that, like, back heel trick to set up, I think it was Raul for, for a tap-in. Yeah. I think McManaman was playing in midfield alongside of him. Roberto Carlos was a wing-back. And essentially, when, when Real Madrid were playing an attack, he was literally the only guy back um, with, with the defenders. And he was basically owning the entire midfield himself, like winning balls across the entire width of the pitch. I mean, people look at Casemiro nowadays, who, who's a physical beast, and, and he's, he's he has athletic, he's fast, he has stamina, and Redondo doesn't really look like that guy, but he was basically able to do kind of the things that, that we see Casemiro doing it, but times that by three, because we have a lot more structure today than we did when, when and in some of those games when Redondo was playing. So you have to take that into account. So it's not like... Redondo was just like flair. He he was a really really smart defensive midfielder, and he was he was a top class defensive midfielder. And I think that's something people should consider when they're comparing him to Makaleli and Xabi Alonso. Who, by the way, I, I I skipped my bench. So Roberto Carlos is obviously on my bench, and Xabi Alonso is in my is on my bench as well. Right. Um, to your point about Redondo and like the era he played in and the support. A regular midfield for Real Madrid during that season was Redondo, Raul, and McManaman. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) I. That's great. I mean, to be honest, I think that says a lot about Raul too, like how good he was that you can just put him there and then the team somehow just works, you know, like, but um, no, you're right. I, I think he was, Redondo was another guy who was just ahead of his time. So I have Redondo starting as well. So far, I don't think we've disagreed on any position. Oh, for I don't, I didn't actually really mention Roberto Carlos and Marcelo, who I had starting over the other, but I'm, I because I didn't really have an answer. I'm just going to put Roberto Carlos just so it's not, just so it's <laughs> not too identical to yours. So I mean, I think the next position we have a difference. So this is right. right hold central. on, hold on, hold on. All right, all right, all right. The the guy I have in I, on the bench for Redondo is, and I guess. Because you had Shabby. 
had Shabby Alonso. Uh, I had Shabby as a bench as a central midfielder. That's okay, right? Like, I mean, I personally it. never play him there, but I guess it's all right. I know, but I just wanted, I needed to have him in the team, and I. That's it. It was just my way of just. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Because in like a real life scenario, you're you're not gonna. He's not like a direct sub for a central midfielder. He's, mm-hmm. you know, you you just kind of shuffle things around. But I had Jose Piri, who you also had. But did yeah, you, where, I, what position did you have him a sub for? A bit higher up the pitch. So I had him as like an all around. So like I yeah. did, I put emojis on all of my my starting lineup just to make it. I don't know, like kind of more interesting, I guess. And he was like the toolkit emoji because. Piri's like his legacy at Real Madrid was again a very very long one won a ton of trophies but he was extremely versatile so he could play in defensive midfield he he played kind of as an interior for for more of his career but he was kind of like Hierro except higher up the pitch so I had him as a sub for for uh, like one of the two interiors but he could also play as a defensive midfielder um and for me Piri was like there were other players that I definitely think other people would argue but I would put him in there because from a tactical perspective when you're building an 11 you're building a squad I think he he just has to be there because he was he was ridiculously versatile he could play anywhere in midfield and I mean his 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 career at Madrid I mean is fantastic um he played from 1964 to 1980 which is ridiculous picked up 417 appearances scored over 100 goals so I mean, this guy really was the complete package. I think he's one of the more unknown players in Real Madrid's history, but for me, he was one of the locks but he uh, just on the bench. He'd essentially be like the Nacho of this squad. <laughs> yeah, except no offense to Nacho, but like you'd say, Nacho at like a world class level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, just in the context of this squad, like yeah, you yeah. Just call call him in, and he'll do whatever you need him to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's the next position? So next position, right central midfield, I had Luka Modric in there. And so this was probably what caused the most controversy. I mean, it was a tough decision, but it wasn't as tough as the defensive midfield choice for me. And the reason it caused the most controversy, and and people got really angry when they were replying to this, is because I left Zidane out. Mm. And because I put Petey on the bench, Zidane doesn't make the bench either. Um, And I think you can make a case... Zidane to be either in the 11 or on the bench I mean if I was making a 23 man squad I would probably put Zidane um, in there but I think what a lot of people forget about Zidane is that he was post peak for most of his time at Real Madrid and his consistency wasn't the greatest I mean he was more of a moments player which again if you were building a squad for like one match I would actually put Zidane in there because he was a he was a moments player and you know, like we saw in the World Cup, I mean, in particular moments, he could just put the team on his back and do things that almost no other central midfielder in history could do. But when you're looking at over a player's career, and especially when you're looking at from a consistency perspective, Luka Modric has to be there. He has to be in the 11. He's one of the most consistent players I've ever seen. He He's an all-round midfielder. We've seen him play in defensive midfield in, in El Clasico and succeed. We've seen him play as a number 10 early in the Mourinho era. We've seen him play in a double pivot. We've seen him play in a three-man midfield. I mean, he is one of those players that took press resistance to the next level, and he 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 ensured that it is now an essential quality in all central midfielders. Um, he, he is the example of the modern, complete midfielder, and he almost has never put a, a foot wrong. 
since he arrived and and took off under under Carlo Ancelotti. And so for me, he has to be there. Um, and I think I, I understand. I think there's a lot of nostalgia reasons for putting Zidane in there. And I, I personally think it's a little biased. I think objectively, Modric deserves to be there. But I, I can't get mad at you putting Zinedine Zidane in there because he's Zinedine Zidane. Yeah. So this was essentially your first controversial thing in the lineup was omitting Zidane. Well, there was a guy who like on Facebook who was like who 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 was like why the why the hell is Redondo in there? But he got destroyed by everyone else, so I wouldn't say that's controversial. <laughs> um, there's always that one guy. Um, <laughs> but like on a <laughs> on a general scale, Zidane was your first controversial omission. Yeah. And, I think there's a lot of revisionist history with Zidane where he's rightfully immortalized. One of the genius footballers, like one of one of the, the greatest of all time. I think to an extent he's overrated, but then so many people then jumped on this train that he's overrated, then he became underrated. And, and now we kind of just have to figure out where he is objectively. The reality is... I some people some people say he was post peak when he joined Real Madrid. I would argue he he was in his peak, but then he he did decline into a post peak while he was still with Real Madrid. Like oh three oh four, he wasn't the same. Even like scattered throughout, he had a couple inconsistent performances. However, however, he was unbelievable f- most for the most part, especially in his first two years. He was incredible in big games like. There wasn't a big game uh, where Zidane didn't play in those first couple years where you just, I mean, you could absolutely rely on him. Like, he just showed up. He bossed. The, no one could take the ball off him. He did whatever he wanted to do. He would pick out a bunch of passes. He would be in these, like, crazy tight spaces and just come out with the ball, like, really casually. He, I think aesthetically also we gravitate towards him so much that we just, we that makes us love him even more because aesthetically he was on another level. Like, he made he made us love football and realize what what an art it can be and um but then like there were definitely years like from 0304 th- and then 05 and then he had a couple years where like he really wasn't himself anymore and then it wasn't until the 2006 world cup where he just turned into another gear like mm-hmm. in his last moments of his career where he was like i think i have a little bit left in the tank and he really went deep down into his tank and, and took out all he had and had a fantastic World Cup, you know, for his age. But but having said that, I have him in my lineup. I don't... So in this position, I actually have Modric starting. I have Zidane a bit higher up the pitch. And so what I did was I have Modric start, starting alongside Redondo. And the backup for him, this is where I put Chabi as the backup, which, mm. uh, I mean, if you, you just shuffle things around, basically, if you if you were to bring him in. So I so I would put Zidane in my lineup and considering the criteria I said at the beginning. Oh, you're changing if, it. No, 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 no. I'm just mm. I'm just saying if he had if if he say his years at Juventus were at Real Madrid. So for me there would be no debate if this was the the Zidane at Juventus because I think you can argue that Zidane is the greatest uh, attacking central midfielder of all time and I think it would be difficult to argue against that. It's for me it's because I think you're right. Like I think you can argue that Zidane did have his part of his peak at Real Madrid at least his two first seasons, but Modric has had five 
world-class seasons in his peak, probably going to have a sixth or a seventh. And he was he was one of the, along with Ronaldo, the catalyst for three Champions League titles, two of which were back-to-back. And I think just looking at it that way, and, and, and you got to remember, you want to go back and look at games where you say Modric was, he was bad. I could count, the, I couldn't move past, you know, one hand when counting all of those games. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, and for me, just looking at it that way, Modric has to be there ahead of, of Zidane. But, you know, make no mistake, I respect Zidane a lot. If this was Zidane when he was at Juventus, it wouldn't be a debate for me. Take note. This is this is what separates you and I from uh, from how good we'll be as a manager. <laughs> I I found room for both, and you had to choose one between Zidane and Modric, and therefore my team would beat your team. <laughs> so I do have Zidane in the team, but he's a bit higher up the pitch, and this is where it it starts getting more interesting it's interesting because like the higher you get up the pitch i think i feel like the more controversial it kind of becomes so i had zidane and then my okay this is this is where i think uh i have no idea what you're gonna say when i say this i was thinking of who my sub for zidane would be in this 4-3-3 so my midfielders so far are redondo modric xabi alonso and piri and then zidane is like kind of like this third central midfielder slash attacking midfielder hybrid. And the last, which is the sixth midfielder, I really had to think about this. I ended up going with Tony Cruz. So, I mean, I, like when you first say that, it seems kind of crazy, but I think you could justify it. I mean, I don't know because I haven't thought about my 23-man squad, but my instinct is that I wouldn't put Kroos in there yet. But I think by the end of his career, I think he's in the conversation to at least be one of the subs in, in, in a 19-man squad. Yeah. And, I mean, you think about it, he came two seasons after Modric did. I mean, he's been critical to two Champions League titles and a league title. I mean, just straight up, I'm just going to say this. I mean, he's been our greatest passer of all time already, I mean, just from a quality perspective. And he's he's also Mr. Reliable. And he, he's also provided me with an example of press resistance that in a different way from Modric that I hadn't really seen in any other player. Um, I just think it's too early, right? Because what he has 14, 15, 15, 16, 16. So he hasn't even completed four seasons yet. Yeah. Um. I I need to wait longer before before putting him in because, given how how many great players we have, longevity means a lot. Um. But I think, two, three, four seasons from now, I think you can make a case for Kroos. <clears throat> yeah, and that's that's the way I talked myself into it. Now he doesn't have the longevity yet, but I think by the time he hangs up his boots, he's there. And I think the other reason why is because. We. After a goalkeeper, this might be our thinnest position. Like, we have a bunch of great defensive midfielders, a bunch of great attacking midfielders, but not so many great central midfielders. Mm-hmm. And again, like, this this point, like, I, I, I can't stress how, how important this point is uh, in our, you know, in our, in our, I guess, Real Madrid fandom, um, this era, this current team. 
this has never happened before, where we have the two best central midfielders on earth in the same team. And in addition to that, we have depth in Kovacic and then Isco, who can play there. Mm -hmm. And who else? Sabayos, who will never play there. (laughs) 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 Um, This is really rare. Like, it's really rare, the kind of team we have right now. Like, and and Real Madrid just doesn't have... It just doesn't happen throughout history, like especially throughout recent history. Um, so it's not like that we have this huge list of these elite central midfielders that you can pick from. Like there's like ten or twenty of them. No, it's really like I think Cruz definitely gets there by the time he he retires. Cruz mm-hmm. is another one of those players who were like, oh my god, like ten years and I'm like, man, I really miss Cruz. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we're gonna miss him. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So this is where you you bring in Di Stefano. Yeah, so I, a lot of, I wouldn't say misconception, but a lot of Madrid fans who haven't watched him, which is understandable. I mean, there's not that many games where you can watch him, but yeah. a lot of people would just put him at like a striker, like a long Raul yeah. or a long or a long Pushkas. But when you look at him stylistically, He's much more of, an, of, a, of a midfielder. I mean, the thing with Di Stefano was, as I mentioned before, he was a total footballer. So he would control the build-up phase of the game, like an Alonso, like a Busquets, like a Xavi. And then when it moved into attacking midfield, he basically turned into an Ozil or a Hamas, and he'd play you know, penetrative balls out to the flanks or through the middle to the forwards. And then once he got into the final third, he would go into the box and he'd have the finishing ability and the movement to basically look like the best central striker on earth. I mean, obviously, that, that would take a huge toll on a player to, in the modern game to do that. So obviously, he wouldn't be able to do that in the same way, So, which is why he would probably best be played, I think, as an advanced attacking midfielder in a 4-3-3. So it'd be kind of asymmetric. Di Stefano would c- kind of be more like a number 10, but given his all-around qualities i mean he also defended like he actually it's not a lie like when you watch those games he would run back track back and defend even though he was the dominant superstar in the team i mean di stefano i mean it's hilarious when you watch him he would literally just go up to to one of his teammates and just take the ball off them i would just take the ball from them and then start play i mean that was the kind of clout he had on the team Yet he had the willingness and ability to defend. So I mean, you can easily play him as one as the advanced attacking midfielder in a four three three, and you would have a stable team. And you would essentially just give him the freedom to roam roam the pitch and dictate things. And I think that's a perfect position to play him. I don't think he'd score as many goals in today's game because it it, it just takes the toll on a player too much when you're playing that kind of position. But he would be something else. And for me, that's the perfect position to play him in. My main gripe about going back and watching these these old games is that the way they were filmed... Oh, it's horrible. You, it's horrible. you can only see the player with the ball. So you, you really have no like tactical perspective of like what, what's, who was where, what's, what does the player see. It's like you can barely see what's on the pitch. It, it, the, the, the camera angles were terrible. I yeah. had to, when, I, when I wrote the tactical analysis for the 1960 Champions League final, I rewatched that match five times. Yeah, you know, it's 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 impossible. This is the other thing that like we just even when we watch them, we don't really have context. Like this, it's it's, and that's just the reality. I mean, like we we can't really see what else is going on the pitch. Having said that, it is interesting that like you brought up the point about Di Stefano's like true position. It's interesting that the 
three most prolific goal scorers the club has ever seen, who are which are Ronaldo, Raul, and Di Stefano. Neither of them are actually strikers. Yeah, like I wouldn't say they're competing for the same position because they all, all three of them are, are different. Because Ronaldo will cut in from the left, Di Stefano will play a bit deeper, and Raul is kind of like a shadow forward. So, but it's for that reason it can be challenging trying to figure out where you want to play all of them when need, all three of them are not nines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Raul, I'd say out of the three, is the one most comfortable there. Um, it's interesting when you look at Di Stefano because when you watch his his games, he's almost like you mentioned this already. But there's times where he's almost like a deep lying playmaker. Like he plays, he played quite deep, and I think maybe a weird comparison, but one that hasn't you know, been talked about enough is that Di Stefano and Zidane were actually similar. Like stylistically, they would kind of, they have this thing where they would play the game in slow motion. Uh, they would kind of slow down time with the ball. They would control the tempo. They would both drop deep. They'd both constantly show as an outlet and the TST mates would constantly look to him uh, for an outlet pass. And they also both had a bald spot. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean... When you watch the old games, it's like, oh my god, is that Zidane just black and white version? It's just you watch him; it's like a big bald spot. They kind of have a similar frame, similar kind of dribbling style, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a fair comparison. I mean, I think stylistically, I think Zidane's a fair comparison. I think Modric might even be a better fair comparison, just when you're thinking about um, just all around capabilities, because Modric is a much better defender than Zidane ever was. And Di Stefano is also a quite quite a good defender. I think I think Zidane's a good comparison. I think Modric's a good comparison. I mean you're th- you're you're thinking about you have to think about when you think of Di Stefano, you have to think about all around central midfielders with with, with attacking flair. Like really yeah, really, really good attacking ability. I mean it's not a midfielder that really exists in today's game or in any other period in history, but I think that's a good way to think about it when you're thinking about Di Stefano. Who was your sub for this position? So because I only had seven subs, I had Alonso right. and Piri as my two central midfield subs, and my other two subs are attacking subs for the front line. You're, um, so when I'm looking at you, you're, you're kind of lacking in attacking midfield options. Yeah. Off the bench, off the bench. I mean, I have... Well, I don't want to mention it now, but I have I have a player that I feel could slot in there. Okay. Um, Okay. But like, yeah, that would kind of be the weakness in my in my squad. Who's next? Uh, so there's so, three positions left. They're all front so, three. So let's just go to the left wing, and okay. we don't even need to talk about this at all. Um, I have Cristiano Ronaldo on the left wing. There's absolutely no debate here. Um, we don't even need to discuss this. I'm just going to move straight to the bench. Um, I have Hugo Sanchez, who was... I don't know. I, I'd say he's one of the most underrated players in Real Madrid's history. I mean, yeah. when you talk about statistical unicorns, yeah. Hugo Sanchez was a statistical unicorn. I mean, he would like win the Pichichi every year. He scored like 38 goals in one season. He, he would score 30 plus goals like in, in, in consecutive seasons. Um, he His trademark was this crazy bicycle kick. I mean, he was just, he was kind of like the Ronaldo of his time. I mean, he had flair, you know, he had, he had cockiness. He was a goal-scoring machine, and and he had like trademark uh, plays about him, like the bicycle kick, kind of like Ronaldo's trademark stance on the free kick or something like that. Um, 
he he would Hugo Sanchez. It almost feels like a crime that he's not in the eleven because I feel almost on any other team he would be in the eleven, but I think that just speaks to the attacking quality realm that has had over in its history. But for me, he was a lock on the bench. Yeah, I have it set up the exact same way as you. So I have Ronaldo on the left and Hugo Sanchez is a sub, even though it's not a direct sub. Um, yeah, I, yeah. But but we we understand why we have have it laid out that way because we can just shift things around and there's only. There's only so many spots, and you have to have Hugo in there. And I, I agree about him being one of the most under-talked players in our history. Like, if you go, we know that Ronaldo and Messi completely skew our sense of reality. It's like almost a blur because you look at the Pichichi race every year. It's like it's very rare that one of them wins without scoring forty goals. Like. 37 Messi last year. And then, I mean, Luis Suarez kind of joins and scores 40 goals, which is kind of ridiculous. But um, then you go back. Ronaldo, 48. And then, like, 2012, 2011, 2010, it's just crazy. 45, 50, 41 goals. And then before that, 34 goals. Like, we thought... Like, I thought Raul, when he won it with, like, 24, 25 goals. I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing. Um Ronaldo and Messi have just completely skewed like what what greatness really is like, and we just expect it. And then you go all the way back, and no player really has won it. Actually, not a single player. Um, before two thousand eight, apart from OG Ronaldo in ninety six ninety seven, won it with scoring thirty more than thirty goals. And then you go all the way back to nineteen eighty nine, and then there's like standouts. Hugo Sanchez, thirty eight goals. Like, where does that come yep. from? Nineteen eighty nine, he's scoring thirty eight goals. He's he's a complete a statistical anomaly. Uh, he also won the Pichichi four years straight uh, before that, and yeah, I he was crazy good. And like, I think I I was reading some of the comments. I don't know if it was on your tweet or if it was on the Facebook page. Uh, about why isn't Butragueño starting? It's because of Hugo Sanchez. It was it, you absolutely have to have Hugo over El Buitre. Like I mean, Butragueño is a fantastic player. I mean, but sure. that just tells you how good Hugo Sanchez was. Yeah, yeah. Um, where are we at now? So we can move to right wing. Okay. So I had Paco Hento. We were talking about him earlier. Um. And honestly, he's my personal favorite of of the Di Stefano dream team. Um, he wasn't he wasn't the best. I think Pushkas and Di Stefano were better than him. But he was my personal favorite because in that era, you still had players that played football to entertain. You know, I mean, obviously, Hector played to win, but he had this air about him where he would just do things that had no real purpose that would help you win a game, but he'd just do it because it was awesome. Like, he'd just play a Rabona pass out of nowhere. He'd try to flick the ball over a player's head, and he would pull it off like 70% of the time because he was that damn good. And for a player that was so focused on entertaining, he had a lot of end product. I think he produced over 100 assists in his Real Madrid career. Um the trait everyone knows him for is being ridiculously fast. I think if yeah. you placed him on this field today, I think he could possibly be as fast as Gareth Bale. I mean, this guy, this guy had a real engine on him. Um, yeah, it'd be crazy just, if he he grew up in this era and you uh, you pump him with some like HGH and give him some <laughs> like proper nutrition, like tell him to not smoke and stuff. 
he'd probably be a just complete monster. Yeah, you need to go back and watch these games just for Hendo because it was just such a joy to watch the way he played. Um, he had this awesome one-two combination with Pushkas that would that, that that they would play all the time, and he would just speed down the wing like a demon and launch crosses into the box and. It, it, he was unstoppable. I mean, the only drawback was that he didn't track back, as I mentioned before, and that was why Canario was so important. But, I mean, you could get away with it because he was so damn good. I mean, here I have him on the right wing when really he's a left winger. I mean, he was left-footed. But I think, you know, as we're talking about bringing him into today's game, I think he could adapt to cutting inside onto his left foot and, and, and basically the way Bale adapted from Tottenham moving from the left over to the right. And I don't think it would affect him too much. Yeah, that's int- I was going to ask you about because you kind of have him as an inverted winger. I mean, I, Ronaldo has to be on the left. Like, you, yeah. you got to yeah. make it for Ronaldo. No, it's true. It's true. Um, <clears throat> although, Kento, like, was, was basically, uh, like, hugging the left flank pretty much. Like, that, yeah, one, I don't, that the- would be interesting to see how he adapted because he yeah. very much was a classic winger yeah so this in this particular position i had this is where i had di stefano starting and i had kento coming off the bench which leaves us with one position remaining the striker position and this is one where you um have a different player than me so i had pushkas and the reason i have him is because we talked about statistical unicorns with ronaldo and sanchez and the original statistical unicorn of them all was Ferran Pushkas, the the Hungarian player who came to Real Madrid when he was over 30. He was he was looked at as overweight. People thought they were crazy to buy him. And then by the end of his career, he had almost a goal a game, you know, goal scoring ratio. I mean, he was he was ridiculous. He was the he was he was so good that he was the primary penalty taker, he was the primary free kick taker over Di Stefano, and, and and we know that Di Stefano could have taken those anytime he wanted. But Pushkas was so good that he took them, and he wasn't just a poacher. I mean, he was he was a ridiculously good finisher. I mean, the power on some of his shots, especially with those hard leather balls back then. I mean, he could really strike that ball, but he 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 did more than that. So. When he played in that side, there was Del Sol was was actually the tip of the attack. It wasn't Pushkas. Pushkas was more of a complete forward, and he would kind of drop in between the lines to connect with Di Stefano and provide a connection from the middle third to the attacking third. And like I mentioned before, Pushkas would play one twos with Hento a lot on the left wing. So he 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 contributed in 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 um, link up play, uh, one of our favorite terms on this podcast. Um, he was very much an all-round forward. He could do everything. He was a decent dribbler, and he was just a fantastic finisher, and he had a ferocious shot on him. Um, and I had Raul on the bench um, because, I I mean, Raul's a legend. I mean, he's he's more than just a footballer. He's an icon, but I think from an ability perspective and, and just looking at the careers, I, I simply think Pushkas was the better footballer, and that's why I had him in my lineup, but... Rao is on the bench. I, there's no way I could leave him out of this squad. Um, I remember writing an article about Pushkas right after he had passed away. And I, I really went into a deep dive on his life and his career. And one of the things that stood out to me is the thing you just mentioned about his age. He was 31 when he first joined the team, which is... Crazy. Really Crazy. late. Yeah. And it's not like he just joined at 31 and became like just some kind of guy who finished his career at 100. No. He, like 31 is a, an age that a lot of players 
if they haven't already, they start their decline. And he signs at that time. And keep in mind that he's actually hasn't played football for two two years at that point because he was banned by FIFA because he refused to play in one of these trips uh, with Hungary yeah. because for political reasons. So FIFA bans him for two years. Real Madrid bring him in after that. He's clearly not in shape. By the way, if he had social media, like if we had social media for that, he would he be an interesting that, character. He would be so interesting. Um, Didn't he also make the World Cup final? Possibly. Yeah, I think he did. I think that's part. Of, I think I read an article about part of the reason why he's not remembered is because he lost the World Cup final. Uh, bullshit. But, um, he could strike the ball from like 35 yards away. Um, I remember Raymond, Raymond Copa said once that every single goalkeeper was completely terrified of Puskas. Like, <laughs> I'm telling you, his yeah. shot was ferocious. Yeah, man. his shot was insane. It was complete stinger. Um, and so he joins at 31. And after that, he wins three European Cups, five La Liga titles, a Spanish Cup, scores 240 goals in, in 260 games. Crazy. Seven hat-tricks. Two hat-tricks against Barca. Four Pichichi titles. Just ridiculous. So this is... this is And I, by the way, I haven't benched. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, that's yeah. understandable. Raul's your favorite player. Well, Raul's my favorite player. Um, and I and Raul, and I, I think either way, I, I I won't really put up a fight if you chose Pushkas or Raul either way because I think they both have a case. Yeah. Um, I have, I'm not sure how an overweight Pushkas would fare in today's modern game with fast yeah. defenders. <laughs> Uh, but, but he did get into shape. Let's just be clear. It's not like he played as an overweight player. I mean, he he had to like get into shape. But like initially, it was it was really troubling to the staff and the rest of the team to see this like I don't know this guy with the dad bod walk on walk on the pitch and he say like I'm the starting striker now. Um, by the way, I I I, I kind of had a brain fart. Um, I I didn't write that article after Pushkas died. It was it was for the anniversary of his passing, a ten years wow. passing. Yeah. Um, I was not a good writer um, 10 years ago or 11 <laughs> years ago to write anything about him. Um, but yeah, so this is it. So our main difference is... So I, have, I just want to say quickly that yeah. when I Raul would be a player that could slot into attacking midfield because you kind of hinted at this before, but I think a lot of people forget about Raul as he was kind of a shadow striker. He played in attacking midfield a lot. He wasn't... He's, it's wrong to characterize him as a poacher. He was a lot more than that. I mean, he could play in midfield. He had vision. He was a pretty complete forward. I mean, I wouldn't say he was a, a fantastic dribbler, but he had all the qualities of a complete forward, and he had a defensive work rate. People forget that, and I people should just remember that um, when they're discussing all-times 11s, when they're discussing Raul's legacy, and that's also why I have him as a player that could sub in for Di Stefano and we shift things around and create a double pivot. But I think he could play there. Obviously, he's he's more of the direct sub for Pushkas. Yeah. Um, what, what, who was your remaining subs? No one, but I had the yeah. managers. had Miguel Munoz, oh, okay, obviously, okay. Yeah. as my manager of the starting 11. I mean, he was the one that oversaw the European Cups. I mean... You go back and you, I mean, it's hard to analyze tactics at the time, but it's it's easy to see how Real Madrid was just, Munoz's, I wouldn't call it tactics, but his general strategy and his general philosophy was ahead of its time. 
And then I had Del Bosque as my manager on the bench. Um, you know, he oversaw, you know, Real Madrid in a more turbulent time. I think Ancelotti has a decent case, but I think Del Bosque really, I think, is a lock-in for, for manager on the bench. Let's take questions. Um, Patreon.com slash Madrid is where you go to get rewards, um, pledge, donate to the podcast, get guaranteed responses to your questions. Um, so this first question is from Anthony Vasquez. He says, would it make sense to put Guti in a Madrid all-time 11? What would be the main reason to add him in your opinion? So, I mean, so I think this would, I think the way you could frame, because I don't think Guti makes it, but no. um, I think the way you could frame it so that you could make a case is to do one where you have one match and you want to put players in because Guti, we talked we talk about inconsistency before. Guti had a lot of inconsistent periods in his Madrid time. But on his day, I mean, this guy was, he was ridiculous. So I have stats. So unfortunately, stats only go back so far. They only go back to the 2009-10 season, at least on who scored. Yeah. Um, and detailed stats. So when I go to his key passes per 90 minutes in the 2010 season, which he had... Oh, we have key pass stats for Guti. Yeah, so he, he he played around 26 games. I think he started like 16 and came like 10 off the bench. All right, so these are these are actually... They're kind of crazy. So 3.5 key passes per 90 no way. in La Liga, which that is in like the top one percentile if you look at any of the seasons. That's you know, like the tail end of his career too. Right, like this is the last season that's he played crazy. at Real Madrid that's that is crazy, crazy. 3.6 key passes per 90 in the Champions League he only played three times there so that sample size is small if you look at just passes themselves he averaged seven out of 8.2 long balls per game accurate long balls per game which again would be in like the top five percentile of all players in in any season you're looking at he act he averaged around 63 accurate short passes out of around 73 so he averaged around an 86 percent passing accuracy that season and then when it comes to dribbles he he, he averaged 1.7 successful dribbles out of 2.8 total attempted dribbles in the league so at the tail end of his career he put up some monster stats as a central midfielder i mean obviously we know going back that like he 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 wasn't a main starter i mean he had inconsistent periods but if you want to make a case for guti it's that you're only playing one match and this guy was an absolute genius i mean even the stats don't do justice i mean we're talking about a guy who would play a back heel to a player you can't even see in the screen when he has an open shot on goal and and he gets an assist for that i mean he was a he, he was a genius he was he's just a simple genius and on his day he was easily as good as any of the best central midfielders in the world. Yeah, I mean, look, that and that was a year where we brought in all the Galacticos, and still yep. it was like Guti who was blowing our minds like so many times that season. Uh, even though he didn't play that much, like relative to other seasons, I think consistency is a is an issue. Um, but his peak. On his day, he was... I mean, it's crazy that he just didn't play for Spain. and I mean, it had to do with the depth Spain had. But also, on his day, he was arguably... Like, no one could touch him. But the thing is, we never saw that version of Guti consistently. I think if you were to make a... You can't have him in the 11. But if you wanted to make a case for him to have him in the squad... Um, see, like... I can't justify saying that Guti was a better player than Tony Kroos, like... You know, I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I mean, I, I would get it over Kroos 
in the sense of you say longevity, but like yeah. eventually Kroos is gonna is gonna go in there ahead of him. Well, I think with Guti, he's one of those players that we appreciated him more after he left. Like at the time, we we just kind of had Guti. Like he was just it just seemed like he was just this guy who was on f- around forever, and he was just fun to have around. But then he leaves, you know, like oh my god, he was he was a huge asset. Like even when he was older. He did so much. He was versatile. I think the other thing to to give him a case is that he was also versatile. Like mm-hmm. he could play deeper. I remember um, there was a couple years where you know he was he was pretty inconsistent. And then when Capello came, he really brought out the best out of Guti because he played him alongside defensive midfielders like Mamadou Diara and Emerson, and gave Guti some freedom to do creative work. And he looked really good that year. And one of my fondest memories of Guti, generally, like Guti, like Guti did some amazing things, like, and he was a really fun player. In the, I think it was the two thousand season, it was it was two thousand two thousand one, where Morientes was injured for a huge chunk, and Del Bosque like had no other striker in the team besides Raúl, and he just put Guti up there, and then Guti ended up scoring eighteen goals in the league. Like just oh, and Jesus he, Christ. Yeah, he was so versatile. Like he was the type of player he could finish, he could dribble, he could shoot. So it wasn't like we, we know him as this like complete ridiculous um passing genius, which he was. He could do everything. He could do so much more too, yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't think he should make the eleven. No, he's not in the eleven for sure. Yeah. No. I mean so, that just speaks yeah. to how great Real Madrid's players are, in all honesty. Solomon Ortiz says, um, I've read Stephen Mandis' book, The Real Madrid Way, How Values Created the Most Successful Sports Team on the Planet. It's a very fascinating uh, read, and it's a deep dive uh, into the club, what makes it so unique and different from the rest of the clubs out there. My question to you guys is, how do you interpret the concept of values? Edit as it is distinctly made in the book and defined as the core understanding of this club in the way to build the brand, market the brand, and succeed in the sporting model. I truly believe after reading this book, I have a better understanding why they do what they do to win all aspects of the club on and off the pitch, like selling and buying players. What type of player that fits this value, uh, fits their values, and what's your take on these values that were laid out in the distinct nature uh, that makes the club we love so uh, a true global powerhouse uh, especially the similar comparisons between Santiago Bernabeu and Florentino Perez and the vision they saw it's kind of vague and broad but what's your take there's a lot so, here but uh, well first of all we should mention please read this book by Stephen Mendes he's mm-hmm. a friend of the show he's been on the podcast it's, he he actually you know had access to the club and talked to Florentino and it, it's a very good book so you should read it what are your thoughts on this so I had a couple points written down because it's a very Solomon's asking a lot of things here. So just quickly, because he was asking basically kind of to sum up the values that were being talked about. So the way Stephen Mandis breaks it down in the book is there's on the pitch and off the pitch values. And so on the pitch values is and I'll talk about this later. I personally think there's a kind of hierarchy in the way they operate that I, I'm not sure Stephen Mandis explored that that much, but so the the on the pitch values is is you have community engagement. That's essentially the anchor of, of all the values that Real Madrid has. And the essence is to create an identity, What essentially what it means to be a Madridista 
that connects with the the fan base and and is something that the fan base enjoys and it, it, it increases their ability to interact with the club and feel like they're a part of the club. So taking advantage of the history of a style of football we play to engage with fans online. So Real Madrid recently did like a mini series where where they give you in depth looks into the way players train into like the youth academy i forgot the name of the series but it's fantastic it's on facebook you you should try to find it if you can um so it's it, he's talking about that kind of thing real madrid really looking to create content specifically for the fans to give the fans a sense of identity and therefore create a loyal fan base that when when they wear a scarf it's not just the product is when you put it on you you you're, it's something more it's Putting on that scarf tells you about what it means, what what you are as a person when you put on that Real Madrid scarf. And then you have um, that kind of overflowing a little bit onto values on the pitch, which is winning, and and this is directly from the book, winning with the team philosophy, winning with class, winning with style, and winning with elegance. And if the team loses, the community wants to at least see effort until the end, courage and dignity. I mean, this is these are very familiar words, right? Like this shouldn't surprise you. This is something that generally all Madrid fans feel like Real Madrid should play or do play as. And then going back to off the pitch stuff, it means signing marketable, inspirational and excellent footballers like Cristiano Ronaldo, who embody the excellence of what you want on the pitch and the style of football that I just mentioned and also the ability to engage with the fans. I mean, Ronaldo is basically the the embodiment of community engagement and, and social media presence and creating connections with the fans. And so why I said there's a kind of hierarchy of values, because I feel like the on-the-pitch values aren't as important as, as people tend to say, because I've seen inconsistencies in that over time. So the Mourinho era does not really jive with the aspect of like, playing that that classy elegant football and definitely not classy and i think while Mourinho's team scored a ton of goals in big games especially in early classicals and as we saw when we went up in the second leg versus Bayern Munich in the Champions League he played really defensive football that doesn't really jive with those values that we're talking about so i personally think the on the pitch values are much more malleable than others and less important because winning is still the most most important um but i think that on-the-pitch values can explain kind of why we brought in Benitez because he knew the club when he was signed. I mean, he was he played in the youth team. He managed the B team. So we're like, he knows the club. He knows our values. That's why we brought him on. But he also played a defensive, pragmatic style of football, which is in contradiction to some of our on-the-pitch values, which is why I say there's a hierarchy there. And then you have Zidane, Guti, and now Raul managing the youth teams and Zidane did at one point you have Guti and now Raul has been brought in and this is an example of Flo and all all the men surrounding him trying to solidify the values outlined in the book within the club um but I do think there's a hierarchy and I think some of the on the pitch values don't matter as much but I think generally what Steven Mandis is saying is very very accurate it's an interesting take on what Real Madrid is trying to build and I think you can see that you know borne out over time and what Florentino is doing and trying to enhance those values and solidify them within the structure of the club. I, I'm i not going to really add anything to that. I think that was well said. I think that the book itself provides a really good perspective of, you know, I, I've, I've had people who, who are very critical about Florentino kind of pump the brakes on their Florentino takes after reading that book. Mm-hmm. And it, there's... 
I wouldn't say there's anything too revolutionary or groundbreaking in the book, but it's really well uh, laid out and provides a perspective really well in, in kind of the decision-making process behind the scenes, why, why they do what they do, why they sign the players they sign, what fits the criteria of, you know, like what are Real Madrid's values and um, the importance of brand. It's, it's, it's often we fall in this trap and thinking, oh, okay, this is literally a game of FIFA. Like, you, we, we play like this, we sign this, we sell this, easy. Like, it, there's, it's, it's, a, we often forget it's a business. It's not just a sport, it's a business. It has to run a certain way, it has to make money, it has to have a good image, good brand. It's not about just, you know, what we see on the pitch. There's so much more to it behind the scenes. And I think this is the case essentially for why Florentino is, in my opinion, still underrated somehow. And he gets a lot of shtick for the mistakes he's made in the past for for footballing reasons, for sporting reasons, which I think, by the way, I think he's improved on. But um, he's he's in, insanely intelligent and he knows what it takes. He, people like talking about him as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, whatever, like his his background is human, human resources and, and public relations and uh, sorry, public relations, not human resources. Um, and just developing a brand, developing an image, and being able to convey that message. And I think the fact that, you know, we talk about values and stuff, which can be a bit tacky and lame, because in the end, uh, values are kind of this model that every club has, and it may or may not be accurate, and something you have to say. But basically, the fact that we have this podcast that's already running almost an hour and a half, and we're talking about Real Madrid's best players, that in itself like kind of proves what the values of the club are because you exactly look, you look at you look at the the players that are in this list and they're all ridiculous and every single one of them fit the bill of the values and that kind of explains if you were to kind of explain what Real Madrid's values are just look at the players in the list we've talked about today because they all exemplify it. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we at? I think we have a couple more questions and I'll wrap it up. Christian Gonzalez says, I'm sure this will come up, but just who is the player that most influenced you or touched you in Real Madrid's history? Personally, it's really weird, but Guti has always been my favorite player. A lot of Guti love. I understand he's not the most influential or isn't even in the top 10, but there's just some aura about him that drew me to Real Madrid. My family were always Real Madrid fans, but it was around the Guti era that I really started paying attention. So anyone that you really gravitate towards, Om? I mean, it, it's Ronaldo. I mean, yeah. Ronaldo was the one who brought me into football, not just uh, ju- not just made me a fan of Real Madrid. I mean, it's not a very uncommon story. Ronaldo's done a lot, uh, done that a lot for people of my age. Um, I mean, it's I don't even need to really explain really why because Ronaldo in his peak was just. I mean, he was fantastic. He was everything. He was flashy. You know, he could score. I mean, he that's why he's the most marketable athlete of all time. So. I, yeah, it's not really a surprise that Ronaldo was the one who brought me into the sport. It's not not the most interesting story, but it's the truth. Yeah. Um, for me, it's Raul. And uh, if you want to know why, just read my Raul article, which went up last week. It's called Why Raul is One of the Most Iconic, or How Raul Became the, One of the Most Iconic Players in Spanish Football History. And um, there's enough words in there to explain why, which I don't need to do now at the end of a, almost a very long podcast. <laughs> 10, 10 plug right there. <laughs> Got to squeeze him in. Uh, Jahan Watson says, what would it 
take for Carvajal to become your all-time number one right back for Real Madrid? We kind of answered this, but is there anything to add? Like, we both feel like he'll probably be there by the time his career is over. And he just has to keep this level. I don't think this season has been one of the best. I, I don't think no. it's been one of his better seasons. No. But to keep up that level he displayed in the 13, 14, 15, 16, and 16, 17 seasons, if he does that for three or four more seasons, I think he's our all-time right back. Yeah, I agree. Um, trying to think of where to go. Like we have, we really don't have much time left. We've gone through all the guaranteed. So I think we should end with the. Do you think Di Stefano can be in the conversation for the goat? Okay, let's do it. Nader Sharab. Oh my God, I can't pronounce this. <laughs> <laughs> Nader Sharabianlu. Nader, let me know how I did there. Okay. Says, do you think Di Stefano can be in the conversation for the GOAT? I was always partial to Pele. I saw Pele and Maradona in person and have seen Messi and Ronaldo. The more I read about Di Stefano and a few highlights I see from the European Championship games of 56 and 60, I'm wondering if he really wasn't the greatest. Oh. Is that, I mean, some, is that some, sa- some shade on ADS? I don't know if he mistyped there, but like... Mm. It, yeah, whatever. Um, So I think... Di Stefano is ridiculously overlooked in these conversations. I have never seen a non-Madrid fan, and I haven't even seen that many Madrid fans, whenever they're discussing the greatest of all time, bring up Di Stefano's name. And that's just a travesty for me. Mm. Um, Because I think when we think about greats in like past times, people just look at the World Cups, and then they decide there, and then they have a much more nuanced and holistic take when they look at today's players. I mean, at the end of the day, between... For me, there's no debate. It's either Ronaldo or Messi. No one else is in the conversation for me. But I think when you start off, Di Stefano has to be there. Like I said, he was the first and really only total footballer of all time. Personally, I'm not very partial to Pele at all. Um, Pele's Pele's not there really in the conversation for me as much as a player like Maradona is. But I think Di Stefano is better than both of them. I mean, Pele said that Di Stefano was the greatest player of all time when he watched it. So, I mean, and Pele's not a humble guy. I mean, you should just look up some of the things he said about Maradona. And he said Di Stefano is the greatest of all time. And that doesn't make it, you know, just a fact when when it's said like that. But I think it should give you some perspective about the kind of player that Di, Di Stefano was. I mean, Di Stefano was a player that had an impact on, on really he had an impact on football as a whole. So there was another question that, that we can't get to that asked, like, who's the most influential? I mean, it's Di Stefano. I mean, he defined all the values we were talking about. Di Stefano defined the values that Real Madrid would have moving forward. Sir Alex Ferguson, when he was a young boy, watched the 1960 European Cup final, watched Di Stefano and Real Madrid play, and decided that he wanted to replicate that kind of football later in his life. And he, he wanted to do the kinds of things that that Real Madrid side had done. Pele looked at who came after Di Stefano said he, he was inspired by the things he did. I mean, it's just it just goes on and on and on. If this guy isn't in the conversation, then then your knowledge of football history is incomplete because I mean he was a complete he was the complete package and there's a reason he had the kind of influence that he did, is because the people who saw him just saw sheer greatness and he's like top five all time for me. Top five, I think, is there for sure. I I will say this, while you're completely right about what Di Stefano's legacy is, I I don't I don't know if other other players saying things about him is necessarily validation. I 
It's, yeah, it, it isn't fact, but I just yeah. I just brought it up to bring up perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, and I get that. I I was I just think it's I think it's crazy that almost every great player like ends up being having so many bad opinions after they retire, like Pele and Maradona. <laughs> Maradona has some of the worst opinions. Yeah, I mean, even Cruyff had a lot of annoying, lot of annoying things to say after he retired. Ch- Chavi just following in suit. I, um, I, I also, I also wonder sometimes what the player's perspective really is because Figo said that Raul was the best player of all time and I'm like and I read that and I'm like man I love Raul but that's a really crazy (laughs) statement to make um most influential for sure like where there there was a very real possibility that Di Stefano didn't sign with us and if he didn't it would have changed everything he would have changed the entire the entire history just imagine him signing for Barcelona yeah just imagine that. Yeah. We might not even be alive today. <laughs> We'd be really... Yeah, I, I would I would probably be a Barcelona fan right now. Yeah. I yeah, my god, the butterfly effect of that would have changed human history. Oh man, I'm getting sick thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, and isn't that crazy though? In that one subtle thing. If let's say if Di Stefano didn't change didn't sign for Real Madrid, he signed for Barca. Our lives might be different. Exactly. I mean, that's how fucking good he was. Yeah. I mean, this, I've never seen any of his games at Millonarios when he played in South America. And I don't think there's even any, like, footage of that that exists on the web, at least not on the sites I visited. But there are people who said in anecdotal evidence that, because Di Stefano, I think, was was also one of those players that came at the tail end of his career. And... There are quotes saying that he was even better at Millonarios when he was in his physical prime, that he was even more majestic than he was at Real Madrid. And I think he scored like 90 goals in 100 appearances when he was when he played in South America. So That's wild. I, he was there is a there is half or more than half of these Stefano's career that we don't really know about because it was too old for anyone to really document it. And considering we only have that short period of what he did at Real Madrid and we know so much about him, we know so much about his impact. I mean, you should also take that into account when you're when you're when you're talking about and thinking about Di Stefano's greatness. I mean, this is a guy like if I could go back and watch one player live or follow a player's career, it would be this guy because at the same time we can watch some old games, but we've been deprived of so much just because we didn't live in that era. Yeah, I I think, but I think that's the problem, right? Like, this is why fans just can I find it impossible to relate or analyze or or grade like where Di Stefano ranks because they just don't know they can't understand and to be frank like we can't either like we, we, we watch these these all these films and tapes and we can't even see the pitch and we just know he was great and that's it and I think if fans have so much trouble relating to it because it was so long ago with Pele and Maradona it might be a little bit easier like um, we have patrons who who said that you know they've seen Pele play live, for example. And that's completely conceivable because it wasn't that long ago. Di Stefano really was a long time ago. And I think the other problem is then they they think of Di Stefano, oh, like, okay, he's the greatest player of all time. Let me see. They look up YouTube clips and then they just don't get it. They're like, why is this guy so good? I don't get you it. You need to see full games. I mean, yeah. it's it's difficult. I mean, you need to probably need to rewatch some of the games several times because like like Keon said, the camera angles are horrific. But it's it's more about his all round impact on the game. It's it's very different. Like like when you look at Pele Maradona, I mean, 
Di Stefano scored tons of goals, but Pele Maradona was more about dribbling. He was more final to impact. Di Stefano was about influencing the whole game in literally every aspect of the way it was played. Yeah. Um, and you just you just have to watch one game because it's a piece of footballing history that you should try to grasp as much of as you can if you if you're a Real Madrid fan. Um, I mean, you're only going to be able to grasp so much, but you should because it's just incredibly important to our club's history. There you have it. Real Madrid's all-time 11. Um, I don't think we came up with a definitive one, but we have two different ones. <laughs> um, it's pretty close. Pretty I think close, we, we yeah. had a lot of consensus. The only two, correct me if I'm wrong, the only two was you had Pento and Puskas and I had Raul and Zidane. That was it, right? That was. I mean, it was more Modric for Zidane. Oh no, but you had Modric in there as well. Yeah. yeah. So Hento, yeah, Hento yeah, and Puskas. So it's pretty close. And uh, I, again, I, I have no issues with you putting Hento and Ch- and uh, and Puskas in there because it's 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 a fine rationale to include them and why you included them. So it's fine. So I guess what people need to know is this is the gist of the all-time eleven, and uh, feel free to take a deep dive and. And look up these players because, look, we we spent an hour and a half talking about this, but we didn't even touch the tip of the iceberg. And because oh, yeah. okay. every single one of these players has their own story, which is really interesting and it's worth diving into. So, yeah. Anything you want to plug on before we wrap it up? Nope. No. <laughs> I'm not like Keon who has like 35 million projects no, coming up. I have nothing. You know what's funny? I completely forgot it was the international break and I had originally planned to do a preview podcast today for the last Palmas game with Jamie Kemp. And then this morning I'm like, hold on a second. We don't play until <laughs> next weekend. And I told Jamie and Jamie's like, oh yeah, I thought we played this weekend too. <laughs> so that'll come next week, but that's it. Um, I will have a column going up tomorrow. I Hopefully. I have no idea um, how long it'll take me to write it. So we'll see. Okay. This is it. Real Madrid's all-time 11, our very first podcast about just completely about the history of Real Madrid. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like this stuff, let us know, and we'll do more of it, maybe. If you don't like it, I guess let us know, and we won't do it again. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, it takes a lot of research, and still, we didn't even touch on uh, even We didn't even scratch it, really. Okay, Kian Sobani signing off. Um, oh, Marvin, thank you for joining me, and Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.